A radical movement to reform America's criminal justice system is encouraging people to defund the police and not to incarcerate convicted felons. Joining me today is Raphael Mangal. Raphael, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. You are from the Manhattan Institute. Yep. And you have written a rather brilliant book. Thank you. Which looks at some of the consequences, the real world consequences, of this radical movement to reform the criminal justice system. Tell us a little bit about your, your book. Yeah, I mean, the book is really an interrogation of the underlying rationale for America's criminal justice reform movement, which, as you noted, has gotten increasingly radical over the last two decades. Um, you know, there, there has always been skepticism of the state's power to police and incarcerate, which is healthy to some degree, right? I mean, you know, when you give the state power, there's always the potential that that power will be abused, and it, I think it's it's a good thing for a polity to have an element of concern with, you know, keeping that power in check. But what we've seen in the United States, particularly over the last 10 to 15 years, is a push to really defang the criminal justice system at every stage. So, you know, police who are on the ground, um, you know, uh, the, the, the prosecution practices, the incarceration rate, um, and the idea has basically been sort of threefold. You know, we have far too many people in jail and prison. Um, those people get there through a violent and oppressive um, uh, policing institution, and that both of those things sort of, you know, uh, fall disproportionately on the shoulders of low-income minority communities. And that sort of tripartite narrative has animated, you know, as you mentioned, pushes to cut police funding, to reduce the power that police have to, to mm -hmm. do their jobs, and to minimize the number of people who are actually receiving meaningful sanctions in response to repeated criminal conduct. And what I wanted to do was sort of explore the rationales undergirding, uh, you know, that narrative and, um, you know, highlight the downside risk that's associated with the project. It's, it's not just the left that's pushed this agenda. Sometimes no. you get well-meaning conservatives exactly. who have been yeah, behind us. You know, and it's interesting because I think the motivations are slightly different. A, a lot of the conservative support for the criminal justice reform movement came, I think, in part because of the potential savings. Uh, that could be had by cutting the state prison population or cutting how much was being spent mm -hmm. on law enforcement. You know, this was sort of uh, thought of as a, a sort of good government type reform. Um, but of course, you know, policing, criminal justice, this is the one true end and purpose of government. This is mm -hmm. the one thing that conservatives ought to be spending money on. In fact, you know, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that we don't spend enough money on our criminal justice system and haven't for a really long time and that that's actually at the root of some of the inefficiencies and inequities they get pointed to as evidence of why the criminal justice system needs to be reformed. Um, and so, you know, in some ways it's strange to hear a conservative say that the answer to a problem of public policy is to actually spend more money, but this is one area in which that's true. Talk us through some of the consequences of this anti-police, anti-prison agenda. What, what, what happens when you see these policies in action? Well, I think with the anti-police um, policies and, and the agenda, one of the things that you see the most is a, a pullback in proactivity levels on the part of police officers who are on the ground, you know, kind of doing the work of identifying criminals and, and apprehending them. And this is really problematic because I mean, one of the most robust and consistent findings in the criminological literature is that more police means less crime. Mm -hmm. You see studies looking at investments in police, uh, you know, so, so additional spending on, on policing, studies looking at the expansion of police patrols into new areas, studies looking at the addition of police officers into particular sectors, and all of those studies universally find reductions in crime. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that those things reduce crime is sort of twofold. One is that the presence of police 
deters people. So if you cut you know, the, the funding that, that, that police have at their disposal, you're going to eventually start to see a decrease in the number of police on the street. You're going to see more police having to do administrative type jobs where, where they're not actually you know, pursuing their highest end um, um, use. And so you know, that, that's, that's a real problem because you start to lose that deterrent effect of crime. But the other mechanism is that when police are on the street and they feel like they have the backing and the mandate from the public to do you know, the kind of work that we know that they can do, they're proactive. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they engage people who look suspicious. They, you know, enforce traffic regulations, which then often lead to more serious, uh, you know, criminal conduct discoveries. And, and they go after individuals who they suspect are involved in more serious kinds of crime through the, the, the efforts of order maintenance. And when you see all of that, you know, kind of grind to a halt, which is what you see in a lot of these jurisdictions where police have become embattled, you see crime start to rise, you mm -hmm. see the criminal class become significantly more emboldened, um, and, you know, that means more crime. On the incarceration side, I mean, the consequences are really, really devastating, and I think the best way to illustrate them is just to look at some of the numbers from the highest crime enclaves across the United States. And the numbers I'm referring to are, are numbers looking at, for example, the, the degree to which repeat offenders are driving the most serious kinds of mm -hmm. crimes. So in the city of Chicago, for example, the typical person charged with a shooting or a homicide has 12 prior arrests. Almost 20% of those offenders have more than 20 prior so arrests. So simply by not letting those people back onto the streets, exactly. you dramatically cut crime. Yeah, I, I think people just fail to appreciate the degree to which incapacitation is probably the most important function served by our carceral system. So what is the purpose of prison? I mean, often you hear people talking about the need to rehabilitate. Sure. And I, you know, I, I would want to think that if people were in prison, they would, if they could be redeemed, they would be redeemed. Right. But what is the primary purpose of prison? I think the primary purpose of prison is to incapacitate the criminals who would otherwise offend. So you lock up bad people so they can't do bad things to good people. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, the off chance that someone escapes, right? Everyone in prison is incapable of victimizing the members of their community. You know, obviously there is crime within prison, but so that's a different deterrence. This idea that if you do bad things, you get locked up—that's a secondary consideration, right? So there are kind of four penological ends served by incarceration. You have incapacitation, you have deterrence, you have rehabilitation, and then you have retribution. Um, I think, you know, if I were to rank order them in, in terms of importance, incarceration, uh, incapacitation would be way up at the top. Mm -hmm. Deterrence would be a, a not-so-close second. Rehabilitation and retribution would be at the bottom of the list. And the reason for that is not because I don't think rehabilitation is a good idea. I, I think that's something that we should continue to pursue and invest in. But we have to be very sober about what we know and what we don't know. It's, not, it's not the primary purpose. Not even that it's the primary purpose. It could be the primary purpose one day, but it's not the primary purpose today because we have no idea how to rehabilitate people. I've read studies that have been put forward by reformers mm -hmm. purporting to show that some kind of rehabilitation effort has real efficacy. I wonder, is that really the case or is there a lot of selection bias? The kind of people who take part in these programs are probably going to grow out of criminality anyway. That, that, I mean, so that's a huge part of it, right? So if you look at those studies, what you're going to find are a few things. One is selection bias, right? So oftentimes these programs require opting in. Mm -hmm. So you're already dealing with a subset of offenders that has you know, shown themselves to be more amenable to change by virtue of the fact that they have made the choice to opt in. Other programs will exclude certain categories of offenders that might be higher risk. Um, but the other thing that you'll see is very, very short observation periods. So you might have efficacy during the study period where they're observing these individuals and their, their, their habits, you know, 12 to 24 months after the program is completed. Mm -hmm. But you will also see a regression back toward the mean over time. So if you extend the observation period to say 48 months mm -hmm. or 60 months, 
what you'll see is um, you know, that, that, that you can't actually maintain mm -hmm. that efficacy for a very, very long time, mm -hmm. which really highlights what I think is the biggest challenge to rehabilitation efforts, and that is the scale problem. Mm -hmm. Even if we had a, a formula that can be reliably you know, deployed across you know, correctional settings with, with you know, a high level of efficacy, we don't have the resources to actually do that when mm -hmm. we're talking about a prison population of nearly 1.2 million people in the United States. Politicians and policymakers often like to tell themselves something that sounds nice. Yeah. They want to believe in a narrative uh, uh, that often turns out to be fictional. And it sounds to me, when it comes to criminal justice, that often the advocates for reform are dealing with the world as they want it to be, right. not, not as it is. In terms of the world as it is, we're talking from downtown Jackson mm -hmm. here in Mississippi. In 2021, the homicide rate in this city was, I think, 144 people were killed, murdered in this city in 2021. In 2022, it's slightly lower, but overall, this city has about the highest per capita murder rate in the United States. Certainly one of them, yeah. Is, is that inevitable? Is it a consequence of bad public policy, failure of policing and prosecution? I think it's certainly exacerbated by bad public policy um, and good public policy. We know can make a dent in that. I mean, mm. you know, there, there is a historical record on which we can draw. Right. I mean, take my home city of New York, for example. We had 2,262 murders in 1990. We had 292 murders in 2017. So the idea that, you know, high levels of crime is just something that is, you know, you have to live with if you're going to live in, you know, an urban environment is just not true. History has proven that to be the case. I mean, across the country, we had a 50% decline in the homicide rate between 1990 and 2014. So we know that there are things that can be done that work. What I think we're dealing with today is a level of discomfort among policymakers and advocates with the kind of uh, formula that was employed successfully over the course of the 1980s and 90s to achieve the declines that, you know, that, that were enjoyed in the late 1990s and early aughts. And you know, the question that I have for them is, what, what should we do in the meantime while you figure out this sort of utopian solution that is you know, going to work? I mean, I, I understand that you know, some people don't like the idea of incarcerating, um, that, that some people see prison as an inherently dangerous or you know, problematic environment. And you know, to be certain, it is not perfect. There are flaws there. There are opportunities for you know, reforms at the margins that, that should certainly be explored. But we have to understand that if these people are not incapacitated, they will mm. reoffend. And those risks that are associated with that level of reoffense are not going to be evenly distributed. So even in a city like Jackson, I would suspect that the homicides that you referred to are hyper, hyper concentrated in very, very small slices of the city. Yeah among very, very tight social networks. We've been trying to find the actual official data on this, and sad to say, we can't even get that. But looking at newspaper reports, it's pretty clear, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the 144 people that were murdered in this city in 2021 were African-American. They tended to be young, yeah. often male, not exclusively. Some of them, tragically, were bystanders. Yeah. They were literally kids in the back of their mum's car at a yeah. gas station murdered, um, yeah. not by design, right. but, but they were victims. Um, surely we need to talk about, yeah. no one introduces policy reforms thinking they're the bad guy. Right. The people who are doing this think that they're good and think that they're noble. And I think I'm right in saying they often think that they are trying to address what they think are systemic unfairnesses in a criminal justice system that they believe is discriminatory. Yeah. Um, Talk us through that. What, what are they trying to do and why yeah. is it wrong? Um, well, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're, they're focusing on one side of a two-sided ledger, right? They're looking at uh, disparities in enforcement statistics 
and they are considering that to be prima facie evidence of, of some kind of systemic discrimination. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's, that's wrong for the following reason. The main reason is that the only output of the criminal justice system is not enforcement, right? So when you see African Americans overrepresented among arrestees, among people stopped and frisked, among you know people against whom force is used by police, among people who are in prison, you know it becomes very easy to just isolate that, view it in a vacuum, and, and you know base a narrative on that that says, well, the criminal justice system is systemically racist. We have to then you know pull all of these levers to address that racism. But what you're doing is you're ignoring the other important output of the criminal justice system, and that is crime declines. So when police make arrests, when police stop and frisk suspicious people, when police um, you know, uh, uh, make arrests that result in convictions and those convictions result in incarcerations, crime goes down when you're talking about a population of offenders that have a very, very high risk of recidivism and have a very, very high rate of reoffending um, even prior to their initial incarceration. And when you look at the victims of those crimes, you start to see the level of concentration that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. right? Again, just going back to my home city of New York, every single year for which we have data, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are male. So we should be worried about the fact that minorities, African-Americans, are overrepresented in the victim column exactly. rather than the... And, and when you take that into account, the systemic racism argument becomes, you know, uh, 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 one that's built you know, on sand, because it, it, it falls apart. I, mean, the, I think the best way to kind of highlight the flaw in, in that case is to ask the following rhetorical question, which is, why on earth would a system allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of African Americans so disproportionately benefit African Americans when the system achieves its stated ends, mm -hmm. right? The stated ends are crime declines. Mm -hmm. We know who benefited from the crime declines in the 1990s and early aughts. It was not white men, it was not white women, it was mostly black and Hispanic men, almost overwhelmingly black men, right? So there, there was actually a study done by Patrick Sharkey, with whom I disagree on most policy issues. Um, he's a, he's a, a, a social scientist at, at Princeton, but he did a study looking at the effect of the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014. What he found was that it added a full year of life expectancy for black men in the United States. Wow. But it only added 0.14 years of life expectancy for white men in the United States. So that is an incredibly stark racial disparity with respect to the distribution of the benefits associated with one of the greatest achievements in urban American history, and that was the crime decline. There's really very little debate about the fact that both policing and incarceration played a role in producing those benefits. And so again, I, I think that the reform community has to really square the circle here and explain why you know, police chiefs and law and order prosecutors and corrections officials, you know, are aiming to reduce crime declines, knowing that those benefits will be enjoyed disproportionately by low-income minority communities, while at the same time maintaining the idea that these are, you know, kind of racist systems. If the criminal justice system does produce outcomes that are unequal, you're saying it's not systemic bias; it's reflective of different behavioral patterns. It's right. It, it, I mean. Do people really think that police and the criminal justice system should ignore the fact that the homicide phenomenon is one that disproportionately falls on the shoulders of low-income minority men? So what is it, what is it that explains the different, the, the, the higher propensity to be a victim of crime and the higher propensity to be a, a, a perpetrator of crime in some communities. Is, is there a, a, a social problem that needs addressing separate yeah. from criminal justice? I, mean, I, think it's a, I think it's a combination of factors, none of which I, th I think the government is well positioned to, to actually address. I mean, I think the reform community would tell you that it's really just a function of socioeconomics, right? You, know, you have lots of poverty, lots of unemployment, 
um, you know, schools are underfunded, etc. Et, et but here's the thing. Again, we have a historical record on which we can draw. The crime decline of the 1990s happened, despite the fact that poverty was not solved, unemployment was not solved. I mean, look at the Great Recession, right? Mm -hmm. The unemployment rate, particularly among black men, nearly doubled in this country. And yet the homicide rate continued to decline another 15% over that, that course of years. You know, in, in, in 1989 in New York City, which is the year before we peaked in homicides, 2,262 murders, the poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in New York City in 2016, which is the year before we hit our valley, and it remained basically flat, hovering between the high, you know, 18% to the, the low 21%, you know, over the course of that period. And it, it, the, the, the fluctuations in poverty or unemployment don't match at all the fluctuations in, in criminal offending rates. The other thing is that there's a, you know, a, a, a crime adversity mismatch. This is something that Barry Latzer, a criminologist, uh, has theorized. But basically, when you look at the data, there are subpopulations who experience poverty, unemployment, etc., at significantly higher levels than the African American community, mm -hmm. but are involved in crime, both as victims and perpetrators, at significantly lower rates. So what that tells me is that there's some other cause. Now, if I were forced to offer my theory of the case, I would say that it's a, a sort of mostly twofold phenomenon um, that is a combination of family structure and culture. Not having dads. Not having dads. That just drastically increases the rate at which I think the socialization process of children breaks mm -hmm. down, mm -hmm. the rate at which children are going to experience adverse childhood mm -hmm. uh, events that, you know, uh, exposure to trauma, et cetera, that's associated with the development of conduct disorders mm -hmm. in a clinical sense. And those conduct disorders, you know, have the potential to metastasize into mm -hmm. full-on personality disorders. Mm -hmm. And one of the really interesting things that you see if you actually look at the, the prison data is that more common than poverty among prisoners in the United States is antisocial personality disorder. So within the general population of men, about 2 to 4% of men have antisocial personality disorder, ASPD. In prison settings, you see the rate between 40 and 70%. So it's really how do we as a society deal with that? Right. And that's a really difficult question because I don't no. think there is a sort of clear public policy plan mm. that, that provides a solution to that problem. I think that solution is going to have to largely come from within the community. I mean, I do think that there are things that the government can do on the margins to incentivize marriage, to mm. incentivize two-parent mm. households. Um, but but beyond don't, that, don't, don't blame the police. <laughs> right. That, I mean, that is not the fault of the police. Yeah. I mean, police, the criminal justice system, they come in after the fact. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, they are coming in to solve a problem that begins in the home. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming here to talk about it. Thank you so much for coming to Mississippi. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Final very quick question. Sure. What should we try to do here in Mississippi to address some of these problems? What, what laws should we pass or legislation? Well, look, I, mean, I think it's important to say that, that you know, there's, there's no sort of magic bullet here, but I, I do think policies that should be considered are some version of you know, a strike system where you are drawing a line as to repeated criminal conduct, mm -hmm. where you say beyond this point, no more. The reason for that is, again, if you were to look at the statistics on who actually commits homicides, what you're going to see are people with very extensive criminal histories. Mm -hmm. And the question is always raised, well, what is that person doing out on the street? And I think it's a yeah. very good question. So I think that that has to be looked at. Truth in sentencing is something else that I think is worth considering. That means so when you're sentenced, you actually have know. to serve yeah. some you know definitive proportion of that sentence before you're eligible for parole. Yeah. Again, because I think a significant portion of the most serious crimes are committed by people with active criminal justice statuses, mm -hmm. including parole. That's historically been the case, and it's not unique to Mississippi. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think would be really, really good for all states to do, but including Mississippi, is have some kind of state-funded mandate for data gathering. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much that we don't know that we should know. Um, and you can't make good policy in the dark.
right? And, and it is, you know, really frustrating for a researcher. So the like state me. government should invest in good data collection. Absolutely, where you have, you know, agencies, whether it's the police department, prosecutors' offices, offices of court administration, that are in a systematic and uniform way reporting the kind of data that we need to both better understand mm -hmm. the scope of our crime problem, its nature, where it's concentrated, and what might be driving it. And that's how we start making really good mm -hmm. policy. Wonderful. Raphael, thank you so much for coming. Thank and you. your book, I hope, will be on the bestseller list. I hope so too. Particularly after this podcast. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. Great.